Hi, guys. This is the CFP Exam General Principles podcast series, and I'm Cindy Rickey, a professor at the College for Financial Planning and a former CFP exam student. I'm really excited to be here today to share with you some ideas on how certain CFP exam topics might be tested. So take a listen, hear some great exam tips, and be ready to become better prepared to answer CFP exam questions. In this episode, we're going to decode the alphabet soup. I like to call education savings and credits, specifically UGMAs, UTMAs, double E and I, CESAs, QTPs, AOTC, and LLCs. Hey, that sounds like cheerleading. UGMAs, UTMAs, double E and I, CESAs, QTPs, AOTC, and LLC. Okay, I digress. Okay, so generally there are three layers, if you will, to the way students or their relatives can pay for their education, or at the very least get some type of tax benefit. First, there's good old-fashioned savings where money is put into an account and left to accrue interest, with withdrawals being made from the account when the child goes to school. Next, there are two major tax credits individuals can take when they pay education expenses. And finally, students have access to financial aid, grants, and loans for their education. In this podcast, I'll discuss education savings and tax credits, and I'll cover financial aid, grants, and loans in another podcast, Alphabet Soup 2. Okay, let's first take a look at two custodial accounts. UGMA accounts, which were established under the Uniform Gift to Minors Act, and UTMA accounts, named after the Uniform Transfers to Minors Act. Uh, Generally, most UGMAs are now UTMAs, but uh, these two custodial accounts um, allow parents to put cash and securities in an account for a child. Um, These custodial accounts were, and notice I say were, at one time a popular way of income shifting and saving for college in a child's name. However, they both have their major practical disadvantages. So first, when the child attains age of majority for UTMAs, which is usually either 18 or 21, depending on the state, the child could gain access to the funds in the account, regardless of whether they were used to pay for college. The other disadvantage of UGMAs and UTMAs was that they couldn't be assigned to one child and then transferred to another family member's. So this was especially a downside when students didn't need some or all of the money for the account, for example, in the event they got scholarships or they just no longer wanted to go to college. So unfortunately here, the account couldn't be transferred to another child in the family who may actually have needed the money at some point. Okay, now two more sets of letters double E and I. The savings bond education tax exclusion permits qualified taxpayers to include from their gross income all or a portion of the interest earned on the redemption of eligible series double E and I bonds issued after 1989. To qualify for the exclusion, the bondholder has to be at least 24 when the bond is purchased and the taxpayer, the taxpayer's spouse, or the taxpayer's dependent must have tuition and other education expenses at certain post-secondary educational institutions. Know that individuals with income above certain thresholds may not be eligible to participate in this. Okay, for your first testing application, how may Series EE and I education bonds be tested on the CFP exam? 
Let's see. Um, assume that a mother age 28 would like to save for her young son's college education and she wants to use U.S. savings bond. I will throw out two alternatives to you and see if you can figure out which one is correct. The first one is series double E bonds in her son's name so she can get tax-free earnings. Or two, series I bonds for inflation protected savings for her son's education. So it's a mom, she's age 28. She wants to save for her son's college using U.S. savings bonds. Uh, she has two choices. Um, she can either purchase, in this case, double E or series I. So between the two choices I gave, can you figure out which one is correct? Those choices are one, series double E bonds in her son's name so she can get tax-free savings, or two, series I bonds for inflation-protected savings for her child's education. Hmm, figure it out. Well, by studying, you already know that to receive the tax benefits for qualified higher education, Series EE or I bonds must be purchased by an individual who is at least 24 years old, and the parent meets this requirement here because she's 28. But we also know that the child can be beneficiary of a bond but can't be the owner. So the EE bond in her son's name is incorrect, and the correct answer is the Series I bond, which provides inflation-protected savings for her son's education. Okay, you'll also recall that Coverdell Education Savings Accounts, or Coverdell ESAs, also known as CESAs, are an incentive for parents or grandparents or others to save for a child's education expenses. You've already studied these, but just to recap, the total contributions to all CESAs for a beneficiary, remember, can't be more than $2,000 in any one year, regardless of the number of donors to the account. CESA beneficiaries, remember, must be under age 18 when the contribution is made, and although contributions to a Coverdell are not tax-deductible, the earnings on the account accumulate income tax-free over the years. More good news, when a CESA is distributed and used for payment of qualified education expenses, the amounts distributed are free of income taxes. Note that all funds must be used before the student reaches age 30, but... Coverdells can be transferred to another if funds are not needed for the original beneficiary. Next is the QTP, which is the Qualified Tuition Plan, commonly referred to as a Section 529 plan. This is a tax advantage program that helps families save money for college expenses incurred when they are pursuing a degree. So a 529 plan offers significant income tax benefits, which includes the ability to make contributions regardless of the contributor's AGI. Another benefit is tax-free earnings growth. And another benefit we should mention are the tax-free withdrawals to the extent that they are used to pay qualified higher education expenses. Recall that there are two types of Section 529 plans. Uh, prepaid tuition plans, and college savings plans. Every state offers at least one type of these plans, and there are some states that offer both. Um, prepaid tuition plans allow contributors, usually parents, to prepay future tuition at today's intuition rates, or they can purchase tuition credits or units to apply to future tuition costs. 
Typically, these plans apply to tuition and mandatory fees only. So this type of program usually requires that the designated beneficiary, which is usually the contributor's child, go to any public college or university within the state or sometimes specific private institutions um, that establish the uh, 529. Um, additionally, know that some colleges and universities offer prepaid tuition plans as well. Now, um, college savings plan, which is more likely to be tested on the exam, um, these plans may also be offered only by state, state-sponsored organizations, and eligible education institutions. And the contribution rules are about the same as those for prepaid tuition plans. Um, but in this type of plan, tuition isn't being prepaid, but rather um, a tax advantage savings plan is being established. And then later on, tax-free distributions can be made to pay for these qualified education expenses. So um, just to know a significant advantage of the college savings plan over the prepaid tuition plan is that um, it doesn't restrict where the child beneficiary may attend college. Rather, the private savings plan permits open enrollment, and it's available for either out-of-state public university costs or private university costs without any loss of account value. Also, while most prepaid tuition plans are created solely for tuition and mandatory fees, the typical college savings plan may also be used for books, supplies, and room and board for students that attend at least half-time. However, unlike the prepaid tuition plans, the college savings plans um, are not guaranteed by the sponsoring state. So if the contributor is unhappy with the performance of the college savings plan, the only real alternative he has is to roll over the account to a different college savings plan. So drumroll, how could these education savings plans be tested on the CFP exam? In all likelihood, you'll see questions where you're given a set of circumstances for, say, students and their parents, and you'd be asked to determine the best type of savings plan for the family. Um, okay, so let's look at um, a type of approach that CFP board may take when testing education funding. Um, I'm going to simplify this a little bit for this podcast, but know that on the exam, you'll probably have more answer options from which to choose. Uh, so let's just assume that Frank, um, who is Bob and Betty's father, um, has established and contributed to four different accounts for Bob and Betty. First, he's contributed to a 529 plan for Bob as beneficiary, um, and he owns it, Frank owns it. Uh, the second account is another 529 plan, but this time for Betty as beneficiary, and that's also owned by Frank, who is Bob and Betty's dad. Um, the third account is an Utma account for Bob as beneficiary, and the fourth account is a covered LESA for which Bob is the beneficiary. So you've got a 529 for Bob and one for Betty, both owned by Frank, the father, and then we have an UTMA account for Bob, he's the beneficiary, and then a covered L for Bob um, as well. So um, now let's assume that Bob has been awarded a scholarship to his number one pick, Grand State University. And this scholarship will pay for all of his college costs. So because of the award, the fund in Bob's accounts are no longer needed. So Frank, Bob and Betty's dad, would like to make Betty beneficiary of Bob's 529 plan, the UTMA, 
and his Coverdell. So for which accounts can Frank do this? So um, there are four accounts. So consider what you would answer. We have the QTP or the 529 for Bob, owned by Frank the dad. The other 529 for Betty, owned by Frank the dad. The Utma for Bob, and then a Coverdale for Bob. So the question here is, um, which of the f those four uh, can be rolled over to Betty? Because uh, Bob no longer needs to use the funds. Okay, let's figure this out. So there are four accounts. Betty is the beneficiary of one of the 529s, so this account really isn't relevant because we're trying to determine which account that Bob has can be transferred to Betty. So let's look at the remaining accounts. First, the 529 that benefits Bob. 529 accounts can be transferred, so Betty can be named beneficiary of Bob's 529. Ugma and Utma accounts cannot be transferred to another beneficiary. Remember, that was one of the disadvantages. Therefore, Betty can't become beneficiary of Bob's Utma. And finally, let's take a look at the Coverdell for which Bob is beneficiary. Under the Coverdell rules, this account can be transferred to Betty, so both Bob's 529 and his Coverdell can be transferred to Betty, but the Utma cannot. Okay, let's dip into our education planning alphabet soup again, and now look at the AOTC and the LLC two important education credits. Let me stop and say here that you will see at least one, if not more questions on the national exam about education tax credits. As you may recall from studying, these two credits provide dollar for dollar credits against income taxes for education expenses paid if they're eligible. Individuals can claim either tax break for their own expenses, the expenses of a spouse, or the expenses of a dependent listed on their tax return. Okay, first, the AOTC, or as we said before, the American Opportunity Tax Credit. The AOTC can help students or their parents recoup part of college tuition, cost of materials, and fees paid to an eligible institution during a given tax year. This credit helps to offset 100% of the first $2,000 of qualified education expenses and 25% of the next $2,000 of these expenses, or $500, for a total of $2,500. Remember that to be eligible for the AOTC, the student must be enrolled at least half-time for one academic term and meet other requirements. This credit, remember, is only available for the first four years of undergraduate education. And two, there are limits uh, for eligibility depending on modified adjusted gross income. Okay, so one of the cool things about the AOTC is that it's 40% refundable. Now, this means that if after the credit is taken, the amount of tax owed is zero, the individual can get up to 40% of the remaining amount of the credit, up to $1,000, back as a tax refund. The other major education tax credit, as we said before, is the Lifetime Learning Credit, or LLC. The maximum LLC, as you will recall, um, is 20% of the first $10,000 of qualified education expenses, or $2,000. The LLC is more extensive than the AOTC, uh, you'll see that, but that's in terms of the level of education covered. The AOTC covers the first four years of college, 
whereas the LLC also applies to graduate and professional degree programs. An added plus is that students don't have to be enrolled at least half-time with the LLC. Um, that is the case with the AOTC. And, and just like the AOTC, the LLC also has uh, modified adjusted gross income limits to qualify. These limits, however, um, are lower for the LLC than actually for the AOTC. So that is actually one of the disadvantages of the LLC. Unlike the AOTC, however, the LLC generally applies to tuition and required fees only. So it commonly can't be used for books, equipment, and supplies. And also, unlike the AOTC, the LLC is a non-refundable tax credit, which means that once the tax liability is reduced to zero, it ends there with no refund of any excess LLC. So that is another disadvantage of the LLC over the AOTC. Oh, and one more thing. Only one education credit is allowed per child per year. In other words, the AOTC and the lifetime learning credit may not both be claimed in the same year for the same student. Okay, so the moment you've waited for, let's take a look at how these two credits might be tested on the CFP exam. So you're likely to be given a scenario with one or more children enrolling in um, post-secondary education um, in either an undergraduate, graduate, or professional degree program. So um, that'll make a difference depending on the program that the student is enrolled in. Um, you may also be advised in the question whether the student is full or part-time or less than half-time. Um, a question could also include a list of expenses that a student has, uh, for example, um, tuition, fees, or say the purchase of a laptop. Um, you may be given the parent's modified adjusted gross income and then um, know whether or not they are um, eligible for the credit based on that income. So the question would eventually read something like, provided with all this information, um, what tax credit can the parents take? Um, so you'd have to look at the whole scenario and look at the different uh, particulars of the family and each child uh, to determine which one is best suited for that family. Um, one testing application that comes to mind um, is claiming a credit for qualified expenses only. So um, either the AOTC or the LLC can both be claimed to offset tuition and fees, but only the AOTC allows the expense claims for books, equipment, and supplies. So that might be a key, uh, a flag that goes up for you to make the decision on which credit to use. Um, you also need to make care not to double dip the credits. What I mean when I say this is that both of the credits can't be claimed for the same student in the same year. So be careful when you look at a question that you're not using um, the same credit for the same student. Um, if you're given modified adjusted gross income, say for the student's parents, make sure it doesn't exceed the limits for the credit being taken. Now, these limits will be provided to you on the exam, so you won't have to memorize them, but um, just make sure that you check that out if you are given a modified adjusted gross income. 
Um, also, another testing application is whether the student simply meets some of the other requirements for the credits. So, um, for example, under AOTC rules, only students in the first four years of higher education qualify, and they must be at least half time. So, uh, make sure that your student can qualify because um, this isn't the case with LLC. Um, but LLC has fewer limits. So make sure you know the features inside and out, and you should be able just to look at the case studies um, or the questions and peel back the layers to see exactly what students qualify for. Okay, so now our alphabet soup is loaded. UGMA, UTMA, CISA, QTP, AOTC, and LLC. So you should now have a pretty good feel for how these different education uh items will be tested. So um, if you need more details regarding anything that I discussed today, uh, your study books and the videos that we offer are also really good resources to uh, get you up to speed on these topics. This is Cindy Rickey, and until next time, keep your focus, stay the course, and keep your eye on the prize.